Hello everyone, welcome to Sec Tools podcast by Infosec Campus. I'm your host of the show Sanup Thomas. Today we have Lucas Rist with us to talk about his projects largely on honey pods um and detection mechanisms. Lucas, welcome to the show. Hi Sanup, thanks for having me on the podcast. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know if podcast still exist in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah good to have you on the show we never had a honeypot author before uh probably this is the first time that we are getting a honeypot author um and you have actually created in like in different areas of honeypot so let's get started with uh you uh how did you get into uh, infosec or technologies in general technologies it's an easy answer um i studied math and physics um to become a teacher InfoSec is actually quite difficult. I I thought a bit about it and tried to figure out what was kind of the the Kindle that that started me in that um industry and I couldn't really figure out what it was but my my oldest memories of InfoSec is that um I tried to get uh, Nepenthes running the um like one of the earlier server side honeypots by Paul Becker I think it's name and Marcus Cutter um <clears throat> and it's it's it was written in C and i remember i couldn't really get it to compile um so i don't have a background in computer science or computer engineering so i i did not know what i was supposed to do i was just trying following the um instructions and it kept failing and i couldn't figure out how to get it to work mm-hmm. um ended up in the nepenthes rc channel and got some help there from some random people um and that kind of got me started with honeypots in general um so you you said you initially started into pentest No, uh Nepenthes is the the honeypot. Um I I was never really an offensive security. I was like I was trying to find out what those honeypots are, what they do uh-huh. and um what kind of information I can get from them. Um so it was more like a like I had a curiosity uh-huh. um around like this whole technology and this idea of setting up traps. Um and I wanted to learn more about it. That's interesting. You you seems to be like more of a tinkering guy. uh so some honeypot projects and wanted to like get it compiled <laughs> and then get started exactly. from there exactly <laughs> that that's that's how I was stuck and then ended up in an IRC channel with yeah. a bunch of helpful people yeah i remember the the old days honeypots are yeah i mean it, it's a bit difficult to get it running like properly on the servers and um get the logs running and and what not i think these days um it's getting simplified um and pretty much everyone can just go through instructions or rather like a build commands or something like that and get it running easily the it's not like a, a unknown uh, tool sets or a frameworks anymore um it's getting more familiar to people yeah i feel like is kind of a like the is a general trend in inside computer science that people are more on a higher level when they they build and use tools mm-hmm. um you, you're not building C code really anymore um you're not really wondering about them how to link that library so your your yeah. build script goes through like that that's not really the level that people are and on anymore mm-hmm. um so i think many tool developers also adopted to kind of that thinking like you you kind of need to leave the the barrier low um otherwise you you lose your people or you end up having spending a lot of time on on helping them to uh set up their build pipeline which is not really it's not the most fun thing to do like you would rather have them up and running and then teach them on how to use and how to understand the data that they're collecting got it 
what which one did you get started with like you you had like multiple projects on honeypot but what was your first uh, startup on honeypot um my my first honeypot that i wrote um, was glasstop um the web application honeypot um and it's actually it, it came out of that that nepentis rc channel where i was um talking with those people and we were kind of sharing data and ideas um nepentis had this feature where you could write a plugin in python and python was a much more approachable language for me so i started kind of tinkering around in nepentis mm-hmm. um but the kind of it still felt very complicated for me to get something running inside nepentis and you had to run this entire nepentis stack to to have your small scripts run um so we created this kind of spin off um standalone http http honeypot um actually the initial idea came from a um a user called cat um and his his idea was basically to return a a 200 hp code to the attacker and that's it like that was the entire honeypot just always 200 everything is okay and it surprisingly worked very well like we like you didn't really need it more back in the days to collect like a lot of irc bots um and yeah get the payloads by just saying everything okay and if they do a post you capture the body of the the post and then you had your irc bots so it was very simple back in the days and the honeypot started as simple as just returning a 200k um i mean we then got a bit more like we we also start to analyze the irc bots automatically um they were mostly uh, remote file inclusions yeah. um and they were joining an irc channel um for command and control and we would just join those channels um automatically and pretend that we are one of the bots and then listen in on the commands they would send so you would see um who they're targeting um who are the who they're the ddosing um when they're starting the new spread campaign um they started using google to find the targets so they used certain search queries to find the vulnerable websites they started to use uh what was google darks uh-huh. um so they find their targets so we basically we were inside watching them trying to exploit more websites which was yeah that, that's where we wanted to be um unfortunately those days are over <laughs> uh, command controls is is a bit more complicated and it's a bit more harder to get into yeah um those bigger botnets but it back in those days like those web server honeypots they were extremely powerful for what people were capable of dealing with when it came to like a ddos yeah. like you had 10 15 websites in in one channel and the web servers behind it with their with their bandwidth that was some some serious power back in the days yeah yeah agree um and you mentioned um in your documentation for this project that we use uh, vulnerability type emulation instead of vulnerability vulnerability emulation Uh, so my understanding of honeypot is like yeah you have some detections and i mean you have some typical attack payloads um that you expect from from the attackers like let's for example like file inclusions or you know sql injections mm-hmm. and whatnot and then you 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 log it somewhere or you alert somewhere um but what um was your approach of building uh, glasstop so a lot of the other web application honeypots they kind of took a vulnerable web application mm-hmm. and then emulated the vulnerabilities within that application and we kind of we figured out really quickly that this is not scaling like this millions of web applications millions of different vulnerabilities um but there were only a handful of types of vulnerabilities so if we would manage to write a handler 
for a specific type, let's say remote file inclusion, and then just pretend that we, we are any possible website by returning us 200 or K on any path. So if, if you go to wp-admin slash login, and then you do a remote file inclusion, that would work. If you go to, I don't know, Magento slash cart, and you do a remote file inclusion, that would work as well, because the honeypot didn't care about the path that you were using. The only thing that we cared about is detecting the type of attack and then being able to deal with that specific type. And that basically opened up the honeypot to be able to basically deal with any possible um, attack that you would shoot at it, as long as the type of attack was, was uh, known. And I mean, the types that are very clearly defined, you just go to the OWASP um, yeah. top, top 200 or whatever they, they're currently having, and you, you implement those types and you're, you're done. Um, some of them are obviously very complicated, like a SQL injection is not something that you yeah. just implement and you have an SQL injection um, handler. Um, but it's it's definitely like if you follow that that kind of red thread of like I don't want to care about specific vulnerabilities. Only I, I only care about specific types. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of yeah, pushes you to a completely different level, and you see a lot of um, a, a lot of zero days as well. So you don't because there's nothing really that needs to exist on the web on the honeypot to be able to deal with a certain zero day. As long as the zero day is not a new type of attack, the honeypot would be able to respond at least to the first or second um, stages of the attack uh, as, as the attacker would expect it to do. Interesting. So that way you are like also scaling the, the, the project and plus, yeah, I think this way it's also easy for any application to adopt this honeypot, like in, on any infra or any any application structures, right? Yeah, it was basically a self-starter. Um, we we primed the honeypot a little bit with some some dorks, so the the web crawlers would pick, uh, pick them up easier and quicker. But I think even if you wouldn't do a lot of SEO optimizations for the honeypot, um, you would get attacks really quickly. And the moment you start getting attacks, um, you would collect information about the paths that they were targeting. And the, the honeypot would then use those paths to um, add them to the, its own surface. And then the search engines would kind of, would be this like endless cycle of attackers coming, exploiting the honeypot, we collect the paths, we add it to the website, search engines um, index that path. And then the bad guys would use search engines to find websites that have that specific vulnerability. So it's kind of this endless circle where the honeypot becomes more and more prominent um, I think so, like the, the, the most common problem that we had was that the honeypot was too prominent and it was too obvious that like this cannot be a proper website because it, it hit on all the, the, the Google docs that were out there <laughs> eventually. And, uh, the snare and tenor, you, um, leveraged Glassdoor or this was like totally different idea. Um, the, the, the core concept is the same. Um, so I started snare and tenor. Uh, about five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And I basically, I've, I've matured meanwhile quite a bit as an engineer. And I felt like Glassdoor was in this kind of corner. Like I couldn't really evolve Glassdoor more without drastically changing it. Um, and with Snare Tenor, I wanted to address a couple of um, base issues that we had with Glassdoor that, for example, everyone was using the default configuration in Glassdoor. And that was very obvious to the human eye that this is a honeypot. Um, so in Snare Tenor, we separated the, the surface, so the what's visible to the attacker and the search engines from the backend that does the 
um, classification and the emulation. So snare is the front end, tenor is the back end, kind of. And snare basically works like GlassTop. Um, but on top of that, we added a cloning tool. So you could basically point it to any website that you wanted. And it would create a static copy of that website and then would inject the Google Docs into the website. And then you had this like very realistic looking uh, honeypot that would even fool a human that would, I mean, of course, if you if you click around and if you you will f figure out that there's a lot of missing functionality, but um, like to the bare eye, it would look really realistic and it would still work like GlassTop from a um, attracting attackers and interacting with attackers point of view. And with Tenor, we had this possibility of having a single backend that serves multiple um, snare instances with the idea that we want to see how an attacker is behaving with different uh, websites. Um, so the same kind of IP address targeting different websites, maybe trying different vulnerabilities. Um, also, how is that attacker propagating through the IP addresses? Or maybe there's a difference between where I'm deploying this, if it's in Amazon or in, in DigitalOcean or which continent it is, how, how is that affecting the, the attacker's um, methods? Um, it, it was a Google Summer of Code project. So I, I basically had the idea, I made a proof of concept um, and then the Google Summer of Code student, um, Evgenia took over the project more or less after, after she finished successfully the project. Nice. And she did a couple of more, um, Google some of codes where she was mentoring um, and driving the project by herself. It's 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 a successor to GlassTop, and I feel also like um, I found a successor to my work in the web application honeypot field. For sure, for um, sure. <laughs> she, she's she's quite busy with her PhD now, but um, she definitely drove that project uh, beyond what I would had the time and energy to do so. Oh, that's that's nice. Um... What's the interesting stories that you have regarding um, like running a honeypot live and the, the type of crazy attacks uh, you, of course, will see on uh, honeypots? Yeah, so crazy attacks. That's a really good question. I, I don't even know what a, a crazy attack looks like. <laughs> I mean, I probably see a lot of crazy attacks. Um, one of the most common things like in the very early days was those remote file inclusions with mm -hmm. IRC bots. And they would, they would also usually be hosted on a compromised website. And I, I usually went out back in the days to send emails to the um, host of the website and say, hey, your website is compromised. You should probably remove that script from your website. And I never heard back from people. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I probably sent like 100 emails. I, I customized 100 wrote most of them. Mm -hmm. I, I maybe heard back from 100. Nine of them were telling me that I should stop hacking the website. And I think one of them was super grateful that I helped him fixing or notifying him about the, the broken website. And he sent me, I think, 10 Canadian dollars or something. They told <laughs> me. <laughs> and that's kind of the extent where I was like, okay, like um, this is not the right channel. Uh, and then, then I started collaborating with um, an ISP in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, there was one guy um, in the Nepenthes IRC chat uh, called Michael Maurer. Mm. And he was back then in the one-on-one ISP abuse team, and I created a feed for them. And I think that was one of the very first threat feeds that we had uh, from, from a honeypot to a operational um, organization that actually had the power to do something about it. Because if they would find their customers, they would tell them, hey, we are seeing some suspicious behavior from, from your IP address, or they would 
um, if it's one of the hosting customers, they would um, shut down the website. And that was actually, that was probably my, my peak of having an impact on the, the safety and security of the internet, <laughs> direct impact. No, that's good because um, most of uh, the projects that I've seen on Honeypods are like kind of more of a hobby projects, but you made it like more of an actionable items. And, and that's good. That's a, that's a great achievement. It was one of the things that came with the Honeynet project. Um, so after I did the Google Summer of Code with Glastoff in 2009, um, they asked me if I want to join and I'm, I was back then, I did not have any foothold in the security industry. So it was a very big opportunity for me to be invited by uh, my mentor, uh, Torsten Holtz back then, who did the GSOC 2009 with me. And I, I actually joined, joined um, Lance Bitzner's team um, or the chapter of Lance Bitzner because um, there wasn't really a chapter where I could fit in right away. Um, so Lance Spitzer said, hey, you should join my chapter because um, yeah, we, will li we like you writing code <laughs> for us and therefore you should be in our chapter. Interesting. And yeah, the, the rest is history. Like um, the HoneyNet project is, is, was one of the biggest um, in French in influences in, in my career. And not just in the security industry, also as an, as an engineer and as a later as a, as a leader and, and um, having influence on other people. Um, some, some really smart people in that group. It changed a lot in the last 10 years or 12 years now, um, where back in the days it was more like a hacker and um, coder and breaker community. And nowadays it's, it's very much around like building tools um, that help students and people in academia to understand better and learn better. Um, so it, it, it's quite a change from, from back in the days where we were sitting in a hotel lobbies hunkered over uh, laptops playing uh, netcat pong <laughs> to writing actual documentation, um, writing papers, interacting with academia, giving lectures, um, having a hopefully soon again um, annual uh, conference where we invite people to, to learn with and from us. Okay, so the other projects that I wanted to uh, discuss about is ConPod for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. From web, uh, you straight away went for an um, ICS honeypot. Where did that shift come it, from? What was the motivation? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was not a, as drastic of a shift. So between, between Glassdoor and ConPod, I also worked on a um, small instant messenger honeypot um, back in the ICQ MSN days. Um, yeah. I don't know if, if you remember, but there was a lot of spamming going on and it was usually like links from some uh, light clothed females that were trying to lure you to some websites. And I wanted to automate that a bit. So I, I already kind of left the pure web, web application honeypot realm. Uh -huh. um, and with ConPod, it, it was kind of the, the same thing as with, with Glassdoor that I had this curiosity, like there was this, this, um, OT field um, where we didn't have a lot of insight into what kind of attacks are happening on the on the internet. Um, like there wasn't really a honeypot that was able to capture those attacks. I mean, you you could open a, a port and see if, if anyone connects to the port, um, but there wasn't really the like at least not a a basic functionality to interact them with the attacker and see if they're actually looking for a specific OT protocol or if it was just a random connection. Mm -hmm. um, so Conpot started as a like a Again, I, I took a, an existing tool. Um, there's uh, HoneyD, which was written by Niels Provost. This was one of the um, HoneyNet project, I guess? Yeah, I think he was, he was a member of the HoneyNet project before I joined. And I oh. think he kind of, 
he was already on his way out. He was in, he was, he got gobbled up by Google and from inside Google, he wasn't really able to contribute. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he wrote Honey D as, I think it was his master PhD thesis or something. I'm, I'm not quite sure about the history here, but basically it was very similar to um, the Pentas that you could extend it. And there was two guys from the, um, from Cisco, I think. Uh -huh. um, one of them was Matthew Franz, I think. I forgot the other name. Um, but they, they wrote this uh, Modbus uh, plugin for Honeyd. And again, I was in this situation where it's like, yeah, I kind of want to have this Modbus part, but I don't really like the complexity and the, the pain of hunting, running and compiling Honeyd all the time. Um, so I ripped out the, the Modbus um, tool they had in there and run it as a standalone uh, Modbus Honeypot. Um, which was kind of okay, but um, not really as flexible and as powerful as I wanted it to be. And so I switched over to a different library um, and started building Conpot around that. Uh, had was super lucky being joined by um, two guys, Daniel Haslinger from Austria, who was uh, teaching at their university, I think already back then. And he was using Conpot as a kind of a industrial simulation test bed, not really like directly for security, but it's more like I, I wanted to teach my students OT and there wasn't really anything besides buying really expensive hardware or running Conpot and having them play around in Conpot. So he joined and helped a lot with making it more um, easy to set up. Uh, he added a lot of new protocols. Andrea Pasquale joined as well from the HoneyNet project, um, who's a really nice guy and a good engineer as well. He wrote a lot of the, um, and the more protocols for it. Uh, oh, there was also Johnny Vestergaard, which is kind of a, a long-term um, sidekick of mine. He also worked on, on, on Glasstop. Uh, he was having his own Google Sum of Code projects. Um, so we kind of joined forces um, behind this Conport tool. Um, interesting, so the, the same, for, the, for the same reason that, um, that Daniel Hasling had joined, um, a lot of the feedback that we got for Conpot was not from the security um, industry, but more from, from academia. Mm -hmm. So it was often also professors and students who had nothing to do with security and they didn't care about the security aspect of it. They only cared about a very simple tool that you can run and you can interact with like, like with an, a real OT system. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, that was really interesting because we never built this for like academic or teaching purposes. It was always for like we want to understand and squelch the thirst for, for um, understanding the OT uh, part of, of security. But um, what's Conport written in? This is again a Python uh, code? Yeah, it's again in Python. Um, I, I often thought about them switching to something else. Um, nowadays, I, I mostly write um, my honeypots in, in Golang. And also in my, in my work life, I, I write a lot of things in Go and for like a server-side backend system, it would be very suitable, mm -hmm. but it adds an, an additional barrier. Like Python is a language that it's very easy, very, very approachable for people, mm -hmm. and especially for students. Um, if I would pick something like Go, like I, I've seen it with my, my new Honeypot, it is really complicated to get people engaged if they, they struggle with the language and, or if this language is foreign to them. Yeah. Um, so I, I often pick Python, not because it's the best language, to write code in or uh, implement a certain honeypot, but because it's an approachable language that people can read, people can understand, mm -hmm. and they can use to contribute as well. Yeah, makes sense because Go is also kind of getting more easier for people to 
understand uh, but it also depends on like how complex you write programs right uh, python is definitely like more more easy to read and uh, contribute yeah so um, i have these questions uh, pro- probably i'll ask to all uh, honeypot uh, authors that i meet in conferences or in any events um, mm-hmm. this is definitely before pandemic that uh, how do they deploy it and run it what's their setup Uh, so what is your preferences in um, you know deploying or maintaining uh, honeypot running on servers or i don't know clouds or what not because i remember i have um, uh, this is i probably like maybe a 5 6 years back right um, building an ssh honeypot in uh, digital ocean i guess and they banned my servers because of heavy traffic <laughs> for sure uh, but what yeah. was your experience in all these i so I probably have the least interesting answer to this question because I I never really had a like a production level deployment. Um, I never really cared about amount of data. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a group inside the HoneyNet project that has that runs a sensor network that collects a lot of data, and I have really good connections to um, the people around Teapot um, at uh, Deutsche Telekom, mm-hmm. um, which is also a pretty big deployment of HoneyPots. And whenever I need quantity of data or I need something that I haven't seen but I I think it's out there and I usually reach out to them. So my deployments are usually very short-lived and um mostly for like development purposes. Does it run? Does it collect the data that the way how I expected? Or um like seeing new new attacks. Um but I need I never really had the 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 need for having a proper setup. Um and actually for the I, i had the same problem as you described that that you get um you, you often are in breach of the um, terms of services of yeah. cloud providers with honeypots um so i i very early i i started to collocate my own server and run it by myself yeah that's safe um, <laughs> yeah and that that saves a lot of of headache and um nowadays i i have um a couple of smaller um instances on um like a small provider um where i can spin up um a tiny instance run it there for a couple of minutes until i see the data or see that something is broken and then i shut it down again um so yeah uh i i would always recommend to run it on your own server um versus cloud providers just for the like you don't really want to mess with their terms of services yeah. or also often they they block ports yeah um yeah. i think there was a, quite a big of issue if you wanted to um capture wanna cry or configure back in the days but the big cloud providers it just closed those ports or filtered those ports so you are mm-hmm. you wouldn't see the, that traffic i mean it was it's probably good because nowadays like it's it's very noisy um i i i run a small honeypot um every now and then and i think the majority of the of the traffic i see is eternal blue and and wanna cry traffic still oh, that's the trend these still, days <laughs> still still very active yeah <laughs> okay okay um and uh, the other question is like okay once you capture the data so what's your approach of um normalizing it or analyzing it yeah so usually um i'm i'm manually watching my log files so i i never really collect the data and then do kind of a retroactive investigation because uh-huh. right now my my approach to developing honeypots is i i look at the honeypot output and mm-hmm. i'm looking for events that i haven't seen before um and then i go in and i grab that like i i grab the pcap or the hex dump of that event mm-hmm. and i start digging into the, the, the protocol and i start implementing that protocol um so it's it's a very kind of 
it's a very tight loop that doesn't require really data analysis. Um, and again, if, if I really need some data, then I, I reach out to my, my friends and colleagues um, and ask them for data if they, like okay. they usually have data on those ports that I'm interested in. And then I, I correlate with their data. And I think most of them, they run kind of the ELK stack. Um, oh, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, had, um, I, had an, I had a guess that probably you are a grep guy, uh, <laughs> not really a dashboard guy, I guess. <laughs> I, I do a lot of hex dump yeah, and, and then copy from the <laughs> SD out into my notepad and then collect the data there and then yeah. go from there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, pretty... it, it's kind of the, the way how my, so the, the honeypot I'm, I keep talking about is, uh, is glutton, which is kind of this generic honeypot that just opens up every port. Um, and so I see traffic on, on any port that someone connects to. Um, and you see a lot of like unknown ports that, you wouldn't expect very high ports where there's no no correlation with a protocol mm -hmm. um so you get a, a lot of unknown traffic um and that that's what i'm interested in like those like i don't care about the, the big things like http and smb and yeah whatever um those those are getting very boring it's very repetitive mm -hmm. um but the, the more interesting one size like someone connects to a very random port on my host and it's like what what are you looking for and that's kind of the question which I'm trying to solve by, first of all, what kind of data are you sending? What kind of data do you expect me to send you back? And then I kind of brute force me to the protocol. Sometimes I get lucky and there's, a, there's some hints in the port or in the, in the um, plain text of the sent data and I can guess the, the protocol. Uh, but sometimes it's just a, a pure sending random data back and forth between two strangers, um, figuring out what kind of protocols we try to speak. And then from there, figuring out what um, what you're trying to do on my on my host. So for an individual who want to run Honeypot like on their own servers, or I don't know, like on a Raspberry Pi, or uh, maybe on their dedicated uh, servers at home or at any any infras, I've seen like academics um, they tend to offer servers for running Honeypots and research data based on what they, what what information are they collecting there. Uh, but for an individual who wants to run honeypods, um, what what is your recommendations, and how do they go ahead uh, to make it more more an actionable items rather than you know just capturing some data? And what do they do with it? Yeah, i i would I would highly recommend to kind of start with asking yourself a question first, like what what is the what do you want to achieve mm -hmm. when you run a honeypot? I mean, you can just there's so many honeypots out there, and a lot of them are in a Docker container these, these days, you can just literally run them with a single Docker command. Mm -hmm. um, but then you, you will see a lot of data that you, you probably don't understand from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And of course you could approach this with like, I don't know what I'm doing and I will figure it out on the way. Mm -hmm. But I would always recommend to kind of find yourself a goal. Um, for example, I, I often look into my Twitter feed and I look for um, new vulnerabilities that are coming out. Um, and then I use that information about the vulnerability, like a proof of concept to um, look into my honeypot, um, if the honeypot would technically be able to support this vulnerability. And if not, then I extend that honeypot to support that specific vulnerability. And that often means just a, like two or three lines of code mm. to get past the first stage. So I can get a confirmation, yes, I can see this attack happening in the wild. Um, so if if you have kind of this this mission, like I want to understand this specific attack better, 
-hmm. And then I will find the honeypot that is suitable to capture the specific attack. Or if it's not exactly suitable, then I make a small adjustment to the honeypot to make it make the honeypot capable of capturing that attack. I think that should be your line of thinking because otherwise you are you're a bit aimless and you're probably overwhelmed by the the, the amount of possibilities that you can um, that you that you have at your hand um, when you look at the deception technology. Um, another really good approach is, is finding some other people um, that either run honeypots or that are interested in honeypots and getting together and figure out to, together what what you how you want to approach this this question and how to want to solve it. Um, it it's always a bit challenging to find those people. Um, I mean, that's the HoneyNet project, but it's it's sometimes a bit un, unclear how you can get into or get in contact with the HoneyNet project. But I can tell you that everyone inside the HoneyNet project really appreciates if people reach out to them and, and ask them questions and ask for hints on how to get started. Um, yeah, so short answer is, um, yeah, find yourself like an, a problem that you want to solve and then pick the right honeypot to, to answer the questions that you have. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the uh, HoneyNet project has like a pretty much a good lookup uh, for what type of honey, honeypot that you want to search for. Um, so, so that's, that's a good, um, like kind of a gateway for people to just, uh, go ahead and look for like what already existing there. If they want to even build something new. Um, oh, that's another question that I have. Um, when you want to build a honeypot, what do you prefer contributing to an existing projects or building your own? I, I often end up building my own. Um, but I, it depends a bit the, the thing is I, I never really get pulled into too much into another honeypot. Um, my, my approach is always like, I have this question and I, I cannot find an answer to this question. Mm. Um, so I, I start building my tools um, to, to solve those questions. Um, and it's also a bit of a, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a creator. I like writing code yeah. a lot. Um, so I, I have very limited time. And if, if I start contributing to another honeypot, I know that it's not going as fast as I would like it to be. And if, if I have my, my own honeypot, we have free, free reign it's always a bit easier for me, um, more rewarding, more rewarding. Like it's not, not, not necessarily easier. Um, I, I often contribute in a like non code way to other honeypots by providing feedback, mm -hmm. um, by discussing certain approaches, um, by, by sharing my knowledge. Yeah. So I think my contributions is to other honeypots is less, less in code, uh, and more in, in, in knowledge and, uh, interactions. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, any last comment uh, that you want to give it to our audience who want to get into maybe honeypot research or uh, detection research, uh, anything like that? Yeah. So I, I'm in the in this in this field in specific in honeypot field for for twelve years now, and it it gave me a very interesting insight in how um honeypots are perceived in, in the industry and how they how popular they are it's always an up and down um there's times where it's, it's very interesting there's times where it almost uh, disappears into uh, nothingness and people completely forget about the technology and then reinvent it again a couple of years later um but in my opinion especially if you're on the on the blue side on the defensive side it's one of the best tools to to get an, an understanding on what's happening and a very good idea of um, what you're actually supposed to protect 
your infrastructure or whatever you're protecting against. Um, I think often we are flying a bit blind. We are we are often just um, buying whatever is the the, the most popular um, security solutions these days without really understanding what is the thing that you want to protect, and then um, that leads to often like the wrong solutions, maybe the wrong decisions, and um, also you lack the understanding of what is actually happening, what is actually important, like what is what are the things that are an actual threat to you to your environment. Um, it, it is quite intensive when it comes to like the time that you have to put into it, and um, the, it, it might be a bit of a learning curve at the beginning uh, to understand the tools and use the tools, but um, it has been so rewarding to me that I keep sticking to it and I keep keep writing code, keep dedicating my my time to um, write new honeypots, um, be involved in the community, and uh, especially teaching people mm -hmm. to get into that uh, field and and give them an understanding of hon how honeypots work and how, how how amazing tools they are to learn. Thank you so much, Lucas. I think this was a great session to you know interact with you and uh, get to know about the knowledge of honeypot. Uh, this was fun talk. Likewise, it was very a lot very interesting questions. Um, it's 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 nice to see someone um, like asking also the the more complicated questions like how how should someone run honeypots? How do you run honeypots? How do you build honeypots? Um, most of the questions that that I get is like, um, can you fix this bug in Glassdoor? Like, <laughs> no, Glassdoor is dead since ten years. <laughs> you used an antenna, so it's it's nice to yeah. Awesome. Speak on that level. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Sunny. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the podcast. See you on the next one.